Hello, thanks for downloading the show. Osha here. Before we get into it, I just want to thank you very much for downloading the show. This is episode 350, uh, 350 episodes of a show that I don't make by myself, no. I make this show with two other people, Andy Marr, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer, and I need to pay them. So to help pay them, every now and again on this show, depending on where you listen and how you listen, you might hear an ad. So if you do hear an ad right now, thank you. You're helping me pay for the show. If you don't hear an ad, cool. You'll hear Rod Farmer say some cool shit. Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot of people have been talking about the next normal. It's not the next normal. What if it was the next possible? When I think about the big changes, there's a lot, and there's some that we think are going to be big switchbacks. We're already starting to see behaviours around restaurants that are changing their layouts because people are starting to prefer to eat in more open environments rather than closed environments. We're seeing home productivity digital tools like Zoom, Slack, they've all gone through the roof and they're likely to stick. Telehealth is likely to stick. That's been 30 40% increase in just about every single market. I think there's going to be the long-term adoption of some of the digital toolings and what I call the new news. So if you look on one hand, you say, is there really going to be massive changes in how we operate due to COVID? The jury's out, and I think a lot of things will switch back because of long-held personal behaviours. But otherwise, there has actually been a lot of new news, which could be an inflection point. That is Dr. Rod Farmer. And this is episode 350 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. 
Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of the show by downloading it and getting involved. I really appreciate it. This is episode 350 of the show with Dr. Rod Farmer. Rod is, she's got a big title. What, what would I say? He is an associate partner at McKinsey in Sydney. He's a, I guess he's a, he's a digital design expert and a, a human-centered design expert. He's a fascinating human being, and I, and I can't wait to bring in the conversation that he and I have. What is this show? This show is simply a podcast designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear on this show will make you think, oh, you know what, today, much better than it was yesterday, because I heard something that either Rod or G said, and uh, that's it. That's it. Something you hear today, you'll need to hear. And that's the end of the story. You know, you'll hear something on the show today that you need to hear that'll help you make today better than yesterday. That's the same for every show. 350 episodes, so there's 349 other conversations. And I'm also here every Friday. Mondays I talk with a guest, Fridays I talk with you. And um, who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host and a book writing guy and a podcaster and a dad and a stepdad from Sydney at the moment. I'm in stage four lockdown in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm um, doing a lot of bicycle riding. I have a, a, a wheel-on bike trainer here, so I'm doing a lot of Zwift, which is um, basically, I was thinking today, it's like I, I, I generally don't play video games, but I'm now understanding that, no, I play a video game for hours and hours and hours every week. And it's a video game that I use my body as a controller to race my little man on the screen against men and women all over the world in this massive multiplayer online game. I was racing in France today. With somebody I actually knew, and I was speaking to him on the phone while we raced. But that was cool. That was cool. So, yeah, I guess I do play video games. Uh, I just don't sit on a couch to do it. Anyway, thanks heaps to everyone that got in touch through the week. You can always email me, email at gmail.com. That is my email address. If you need anything, that's where you can find me. It's pretty easy. Thanks for the great photos of people who were wearing a mask while listening to the episode on Friday called Mask Up. I really appreciate that. Thank you very, very, very much. Through the week, I did jump on board and asked, uh, on, I jumped on Instagram and asked if there was any questions because um, I wanted to answer a couple of questions just very quickly that came off the Instagram. Oh, there's a few Bachelor-related ones. I might do a full Bachelor-related podcast uh, later on, but a lot of people ask me how tall Lockie, our new Bachelor, is. Um, very. I'm 178, so I'm four centimetres shorter than six foot tall. Shortest of all my brothers. They all got over six, the bastards. But, um, yeah, Lockie's massive. He's actually head and shoulders above me. But that's not really the – what's really wild is he's twice as thick as me from nipple to back. He's two of me wide. I can't put my arms around him. He's a giant of a man. And that's, that's really quite interesting. Uh, someone's asked me a question. Uh, this is off Instagram. Uh, Simmer asks, what have you found to be the hardest part of my 2020 experience? I think like generally it's the same thing. Uh, at first it was environmental news and, and now it's COVID safety protocols. I think it's the communication of the urgency of action and how as a collective we have to all do our bit to make sure that we can all as a community get through it. I think that's the thing that I've found the most difficult is that I, I guess I – I can be a real selfish son of a bitch, Simmer, but I understand that I'm a part of a community and my actions affect other people and I have to do my part. But there are people running around. I mean, I'm in stage four lockdown in Melbourne and there's army on the street, so there's not a lot of people not complying. Pretty much everybody's complying down here because it's, well, there's, you see the odd anomaly, 
of people who are filming themselves not complying, but that tends to be more for a performative look at me nature than anything else as far as I'm concerned. But I, definitely when I'm up in Sydney and I see people fingering the peanut butter and then putting it back on the shelf, it's like, what? we're in a fucking pandemic, man. But that nobody does that out of spite. And I think I've got to remember that. I've got to remember that nobody does that out of spite. They do that because they don't understand or they haven't been told or they haven't been communicated to effectively enough. This is a really important thing. And you need to do your part to keep yourself and everyone else safe. And I think I found that to be the most difficult part. And then the knock-on effects of that. You know, I'm in lockdown. I'm far away from my family. And I was just texting a friend before, like, I try to have as much FaceTime video calls with my family as possible back in Sydney. But then I find if I have too much of it, I get really sad. So there's a bit of a balance that I'm working on. So anyway, thanks heaps for the the question, which does, I guess, lead me into, oh, Lola Berry. Oh, beautiful Lola Berry asks a question. Lola Berry asks, how are you going in Melbourne lockdown? To be honest, Lola, I knew that I'd be here for a while and I knew that I would probably not be doing much down here except working. So I brought my, my bike trainer with me and I brought my sandbags with me. And I'm just training heaps, training and cooking and working. That's all I'm doing, Lola. That really is all that I'm doing. And um, yesterday was really cool, actually, Lola. I rode 160 Ks, which is a 160.9 kilometers, which is 100 miles. Cyclists call that an imperial century. There's the metric century, which is 100 Ks, and the imperial century, which is 100 miles. And I rode 100 miles on my bike yesterday. It took me just, just under five hours. But... What was really lovely, Lola, is that along the way, at 100 k's, I, I jumped off the bike for really quickly to have a, have a wee and uh, eat something very quickly and then jump back on after three hours. And um, I just jumped on Instagram and said, hey, look, I'm doing this. If you want to jump on, I'm there. I'd appreciate a bit of company. And a bunch of people jumped on. And there was all these people that jumped on and rode with me, um, particularly Pete. A mate of mine, Pete, jumped on and, and rode with me. And another lad called Dylan jumped on. Dylan jumped on and pulled fantastic domestic duties, which is, uh, uh, you know how when you, you watch a Tour de France and you see like five or six people all wearing the same shirt, but only one of them wins? Because the people who are in the front wearing the same shirt, they're basically breaking the wind, not farting. They're breaking the wind for the star rider who's in the back. So your Cadell Evans or Chris Froome or Richie Port or whatever, they're usually behind at least one, maybe two people who are taking the brunt of the wind so the person behind doesn't have to pedal so hard. And Dylan, bless him, Dylan rode me the last 40 Ks. So he, he was out the front pushing really hard and he let me get in his slipstream and so I didn't have to push as hard to get a decent time. And uh, that was super cool. Like somebody I've never met before spent an hour of their day on a video game helping me get to 160Ks. And that was really lovely. You know, I'm really, really grateful for that. So that was pretty cool. Someone called Chalky Kai asks, how do you manage to power through and get work done when you lack any motivation? That's a really good question, Chalky Kai. I'll tell you the very, very, very short version. The very short version is that in my opinion and in my experience, a lack of motivation is the unwell part of your brain trying to win. Don't go outside. Don't bother. Don't try. It's not worth it. And whenever I I know enough to know that signal means that I should go outside and I should try because the moment I go outside and the moment I do try, whatever it is, I instantly feel better. And the only thing that will will make you feel better is action. Okay. So even if you really don't feel like doing it, even if you really, really, really don't feel like exercising, for example, just 
put your shoes on and get out the front door, all right? Just start, just start. That's the only, only way to get into doing what you want to do is you just have to start. Now, say, for example, if you are you don't have the motivation to write something that you know you need to write, whether it be a report for work or, or whatever, I trick myself. I'll just write some notes. I'll just write some notes and I'll just scratch some stuff out. I'll, I'll leave it open a different program. I'll put it in like the little notes app on my phone even. Like I won't actually open a Word doc and find a font and all that shit. I'll just go, oh, I'll just might write some notes down here. And then before you know it, you've tricked your brain into starting. But that's the trick. Chalky, just find the absolute smallest, smallest, smallest step that you can take from where you are to where you want to be and understand that the desire to not take that step is the unwell part of your brain or the unwell part, maybe an unhealthy reaction to the situation that is winning. And as soon as you recognize that, you have a chance to go, Oh, you know what? No, fuck this. I'm not going to let that win today because that spirals and then the inertia of that can get much, much greater and then it becomes almost impossible to reach escape velocity from that situation. So I know enough. The short version is if like, for example, if I didn't feel like going to a dinner party or if I didn't feel like going to a social gathering or if I didn't feel like going to some of the other, those things, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go then because I know that the not feel like going is an unwell part of my brain and uh, an unhealthy reaction to a situation that will perpetuate an unhealthy behavioral loop that I will then get stuck in and not, and it'll be even harder to get out of. So I'll just go, fuck it, and I'll just go. And then before you know it, it actually feels all right. And slowly, slowly, you don't have to go forever. You know, it's like, it could be just, I'll just be over 20 minutes, do a lap, take some photos and go. And that's fine. You've done it. And the next time you can go for 40 minutes, next time you can go for an hour. Similarly, you know, when it comes to work or exercise or anything like that, if I don't feel like working out or if I don't feel like, you know, that means, okay, that means I, I have to now because otherwise that unhealthy part of my brain and that unhealthy part of my decision-making will win. And um, that's what I found around motivation. I hope that helped you, Chalky Kai. Thanks heaps. For those questions, if you, if you want to ask me any more questions, you can find me. You can either email me, email at gmail.com, or you can get me on Instagram. It's pretty easy to find. I'll, I'll, I'll pop another link up on uh, probably Wednesday. Oh, yeah, probably Wednesday because I think, oh, maybe I'll have to record the podcast. Yeah, Tuesday or Wednesday. Whenever I'll, I'll record the Friday podcast, either you know one of those days because my next week is a bit interesting. So anyway, thanks heaps. I really appreciate it. It's really lovely to, to talk to you like that, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for it. Okay, before we get into my conversation with my guest today, I'd like to talk to you about another episode that you might be interested in. Rod and I are going to talk a lot about the possibility of what's ahead of us and what chance we have now, not only in this dealing with and post-COVID world, but also, you know, what we can do around the possibilities that we have in front of us around climate adaption and climate adaptation. If conversations like that are your thing, then my friends, I urge you to check out an episode. We did it a couple of weeks back, if you haven't caught it yet, with Eitan Lenko from Beyond Zero Emissions. We talk all about this and uh, it's a pretty fantastic, quite uplifting, very positive conversation that I hope you enjoy. Here's just a taste. I think that the great story here is around a sense of shared purpose and community. To me, it's kind of like the plan to go to the moon in the 60s, you know? It's like, how do we all 
get together and have a shared vision of what we're trying to do as a country and get this feeling like we're all working together to kind of get somewhere. That's what this vision is. It's, it's a million jobs, but it's also just the big project of our generation. I mean, that's all we're going to be talking about for the rest of our lives, I'll share. So I um, hope you enjoy the conversation. But, you know, this is it <laughs> for our life. This is the big project of our time, you know. For other generations, it was World War II. It was the moon landing. It was that sort of stuff. For us, it's decarbonisation. And, um, you know, if we can communicate in a way that gets people excited about that challenge and makes us feel more connected to each other because it's something we're all going to do and to leave our kids a better place, then um, I think that's the real benefit. That's Eitan Lenko here on Better Than Yesterday. Find him at episode 344. Just scroll back through your podcast feed to find it. Okay, so let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Rod Farmer leads customer experience and design in the Asia-Pacific region for McKinsey Digital and is a recognized thought leader in human-centered design, customer experience, and digital transformation. Rod and I first met when we both sat on the board of directors at SANE Australia. I've since stepped down from the board, but Rod continues to serve there, and he applies his extraordinary understanding and his incredible skill set to help Australians living with complex mental illness. I would sit there in board meetings and watch Rod just the way he would put problems together and then come out with solutions, I would just be like, what the, that's some fucking matrix shit there, man. Like he is easily one of the smartest, kindest, most interesting people that I have ever met. Now in Rod's day-to-day job, he helps people, his clients basically build new businesses, build new capabilities, deliver new products and services and try to establish new ways of working and also to drive design-led transformation. So he's very much about helping businesses scale up and he does a lot of work around, you know, helping people, you know, decrease their carbon emissions and become more efficient ecologically and things like that. He's, he's, he has a deep expertise in product design and organizational capability development. But the thing that I love the most about Rod is that he has this incredible capacity to put into simple words the very complicated reasons behind why we think about things the way we think about things. His knowledge over why we choose this way or that way is just fascinating and it is absolutely worth the listen. Now, we did record this conversation a little while back, so uh, parts of it you'll recognise as being before a second wave of a pandemic hit Victoria, but parts of it you'll recognise as like, okay, this is two people living in something that is very different to what it was a couple of weeks back, which is where we all are anyway. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rod Farmer. You can find him on Twitter if you like it, at Rod Farmer. It's all one word. And Enjoy. Rod Farmer. Hello, sir. G'day, mate. How are you? <laughs> Doing really well. I would have already done a bit of an intro, uh, but I've probably got most of it wrong. You are an international man of mystery. You are uh, this, probably the smartest person I, I know. You are one of the main reasons I, I adored sitting in the SANE Australia board meetings because I found it fascinating and I was very happy and very grateful to do the work because I think the work was very much needed in our country. And I got a chance to watch someone like you operate and I was like, holy shit, where do you work and what happens there? And slowly, slowly, I got to learn more and more about, about what you do. So what would you say that your current job is and how would you describe it to the people who are listening? That's a really great question. So my current job is that I'm the leader of McKinsey Design and the Customer Experience Practice at McKinsey & Co. 
you know, I would say that I'm a human-centered designer. And we think if we think about the sort of problems that we face in the world today, there's probably three lenses most people take. You want to sort of take them all together. And that's, uh, do you take a bit of a, a person-first perspective? Do you take a business and sort of economic perspective first? Do you take a technology-first perspective? But the answer is you take all three, right? But the question is, where do you anchor yourself first? Do you start with a human? Do you start with money? Do you start with the technology? And everyone has a bit of position. For me, I start with people. Uh, I'm a human-centered designer. I look at the problems that the world is facing from a person-first perspective. And then I try and apply that, you know, whether it's in business or government or various social problems uh, to try and uh, get better outcomes. And just to get people clear, uh, McKinsey is a colossal consultancy company, I guess, that yeah. s- say, for example, if you're a, a large business or a small government or a large government, and you're looking for an outside perspective from outside your own aspect of way the way you look at how you do things, you would employ someone like yourselves to come and have a look and maybe audit a process or say, guys, can you just do a, some research on whether this is a good path to go down or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So, so McKinsey, you know, it was founded 1926. So it's almost a, a hundred years old, and I'd probably say it's fair to classify it as the preeminent strategic management consulting firm globally. I think, not to diminish the role of our competitors in that space, who do incredible work both internationally and in Australia. But you know, I, I think it's fair to say that if you're in a boardroom or uh, working with a CEO or working on some of the, the biggest and most challenging projects globally, there's a McKinsey team somewhere nearby involved. And what we try and do is really increase the performance of our clients in a long and sustainable way, whether in times of stability or of crisis. Right. Uh, and that can be looked at through a PL perspective, right? But it can also be looked at from a societal perspective. You know, do we create, how are we creating more resilient, safe, stable and equitable societies and communities? So there's the business aspect, but there's also very much that sort of macro aspect of how we're creating a uh, better future for us all. And that's that's actually why I joined McKinsey. That was that angle in particular that really resonated with me. How do you even get into this kind of work? Like where when you were in high school, what were you like? What was young Rod? into and what did Rod think he was going to grow up to be? I had a, uh, I was all over the place, but I had as an 11-year-old a room full, like I would say library upon library full of books on Frank Galbally and various, you know, documents and, and legal texts thinking that one day I would grow up to be a famous barrister. And of course, I didn't read any of those books. But as an 11-year-old, I thought having them on the wall might <laughs> help me become that person. Were you folks lawyers? Was that the scene? Uh, no, they, they were educators. They were primary school teachers. And there was just a, a sense of, I don't know, standing up and having a voice and participating and making a change that, that I got from both my mum and, and my dad. My mum was a professor of music and my dad was a primary school teacher, but both of them were very left. Both of them really, they taught, I still remember being a 12-year-old being taught about the light on the hill and the responsibility for us all to sort of look after our common man and bring them along and not leave anybody behind. And I think from that grew the dream of you know, being a lawyer, which I then very quickly learned that I couldn't sit still long enough to be a lawyer. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I needed to pursue much more sort of creative endeavors, which, you know, transitioned from 
working in defense to working in telco to being an entrepreneur and eventually finding my way into a place like like McKinsey. But it's been, uh, and sharing this with others, I, I very much enjoyed having a bit of a spaghetti of a career. Yeah. Many, many twisted and uh, turning routes. Yeah. That I think it's been incredible. Did you say, did I hear you just slip in defense in there? What? So, yeah. so that was the first gig <laughs> yeah. out of high school? Uh, no, it was, it was close. It was, I think I was in, uh, I think I was in fourth year uni. What were you studying? So I was studying uh, a BA where I was specializing in French and sociolinguistics. Useful degree, Rod. <laughs> Super useful degree, but became very interesting. I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> science and software engineering at the University okay. of Melbourne. All right. <laughs> uh, so I did, so yeah, again, pursuing different options. So I, in my kind of final years of software engineering, got a gig with the DSTO and part of DSD. Right, so Defence Science Technology Officer and uh, Defence Signals Directory. And what I was looking at was, which is very public now, was uh, things like battle model, which is how do you run global scenarios of sort of warfare arenas to see about the effective strategies for combat, but also how different platforms would perform. And so I was building up artificial intelligent models of how to you know, model the joint strike fighter or EMF radars, you know, real boffin stuff that I actually really liked. I really, really liked. But there came a day where I was talking uh, to one of the people down there in um, in, in Melbourne, in kind of remember Fisherman's Wharf, and it was about the Black Hawk. And the question was, for both pilots and the Black Hawk, how do you optimise the degree of signals that you send to a pilot? Visually, audio things that haptics that they want to interact with so that they don't crash the helicopter. And that got me into a field which is called human factors, which is really about rather than the technology itself, it's how do you start to design environments that are based around human cognition. And there's ergonomics involved and a few other things, which then really took me down this pathway of in order to build a better technology or a better environment, you've actually got to start with the person, what they see, what they hear, what they feel, what they think. And then how do you translate that into something usable and effective? And that was sort of my time in defense. But that's a very interesting moment that you had. And, and many careers do have that moment when you were, you know, you're talking about how's, what's this, this extraordinary vehicle, this airborne thing that you can load with weapons and people and can drop people in and out of very dangerous scenarios. And you're thinking, well, sure, we could put another infrared camera on or sure we could put another heads up display on or sure we could put all this other stuff there but what's that going to do to the person flying it does the fact that we now have this fancy heads up display mean that that pilot is now a little bit too distracted and might miss the fact there's some power lines and then oopsie daisy <laughs> we lost 18 people and that's kind of interesting that the you, you go backwards and then i guess you start thinking about well, what kind of people come helicopter pilots what are they into what kind of personality type what kind of human being generally fits that mold who gravitate towards that and then designing the cockpit and designing the systems that that person would access around a generic-ish version of that person would that sound right yeah that, that's exactly right and you know outside of places like defense you can see exactly the same rationale for things that people see every day what about the cockpit for your car yeah. the virtual cockpit for the heads-up displays the head-up display on the window when i'm driving what is the actual impact of my focus and time on attention of looking at the road versus touching a digital touch screen in the middle of the vehicle what about if i'm operating a train 
right? Cockpits everywhere that the same principles of human cognition, perception, what we talk about things such as your audio echoic capabilities, how quickly do I respond to something that I hear versus something that I see. If I need it, and doctors, here's an interesting one. We talk about things like sonorifics in the surgery. So if you're in, a, in an operating theater and I want to understand if somebody's in trouble, the use of sound, the pace, the beat, the level of volume to integrate somebody's heartbeat will get your attention far quicker than a visual cue. So these sorts of things around understanding how people tick are really big issues for designing things that people sometimes love or adore or save lives. And I guess right now we are, as Australians and you know, in very many places of the world, trying to figure out, well, what makes, for example, what makes a law enforcement officer in a stressful situation act in a particular way to a person whose skin color might not be white? You know, don't they have training? What's going on? Surely they're taught not to do this. Or alternatively, as well, how come this person votes that way? Can't they see there's science that proves this thing is a good idea? I don't understand what's going on. You're like understanding why people tick and how people tick, I feel would go a long way to helping us kind of understand exactly what's going on in the world a lot more right now. I agree. There's a lot of discussion that's happening at the moment around social inclusivity, obviously, with Black Lives Matter. And and, and probably the the first and last thing that I always say on the matter is, like you, what you were alluding to, is take the time and listen. Yeah. There's a, a lot of behaviors and beliefs that are ingrained from childhood all the way throughout our formation that are very, very difficult to shift. And whether they're a perceived bias or not, they exist. And the most powerful thing that you can do, I believe, is to take the time and sit and listen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you look at where we are in the world, the last 12 weeks of the globe's history is something that's never happened before. We've had pandemics before, but never ones that have spread so rapidly thanks to jet travel and the odd cruise ship. (laughs) We've also never had a pandemic that's been so incredibly well handled in some countries, not others, unfortunately, but particularly in this country, when you look back and you look at the R naught value of something like Spanish flu versus, I mean, we can't call something Spanish anymore, but back then that's what they called it. Uh, those dirty Spaniards was probably what it was all about. But when you look at what the R naught of something like the Spanish flu was or versus the R naught of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 
and how we as a community have used the available technology, our available communication skills and what we know about human nature and what we know about us as Australians and how willing we are to do something for each other. It's extraordinary the last 12, 16 weeks of life on earth. I know for a fact that you're a man that's on a plane every 47 hours uh, to somewhere where you need a passport to go. What has it been like for you to actually just stop? Uh, It was tough and it's been great. And it's given me personally a chance to reevaluate. You forget how much you're on the hamster wheel. You do. It's habituation. I was on a flight every single day. I slept on a plane four nights out of five and then coming home by the end of the week, try and spend some time with the family. And most of my work, just given the role that I do, is focused on Asia. You don't do that unless you love it. So let's be very honest here, right? I enjoy the work. I I enjoy what I do for a living. I'm one of the few people I, I, maybe not few, I hope there's many, many more people like me who wake up and think, gee, I love what I do. Well, I'm very lucky to get to do what I do. But that led me overseas quite a bit. And then all of a sudden, the, the flights stop. But then comes the evaluation. You get to see what you've missed with your kids. You get to take stock, which is what I did, was how much was my travel actually contributing to my environmental impact, my environmental footprint. And then what should be my operating model? How should I work? How can I serve the people that I serve and my family and not travel and you know, live a little bit more my values around environmental sustainability? That was interesting. That was interesting. So here's the stat I want to share with you. The average person who travels on an economy flight and who stays in, let's say we're talking about travel, and stays 10 days in another country will have the same CO2 impact as a household in that country for six months. The impact of a single person flying and having a two-week holiday is the same as a household for six months. And then you sit back and you think, is there a better way? Is there a better way that we can start to work and start to think more broadly about the impact we're having on the planet? And so COVID for me was a very good wake-up call that was a little bit to shake <laughs> the old habits, but by the same token, was um, was very, very welcome on a number of fronts. I can only agree with you, mate. The opportunity to wake up every morning whenever Wolf gets out of bed and be with him through to the other side of his morning nap or through to his morning nap uh, while Audrey has a sleep. You know, I'd normally be out, I'd be on the road at six, you know, driving to set for the sun up or, you know, having been got to bed two hours before he wakes up uh, because we worked overnight. And to see him take his first little kind of crawl or see him, you know, react in a different way today than he did yesterday, that stuff, it's never going to happen again. He'll never be this little ever again. And the same with G, you know, watching G change over this time has been extraordinary and very much like yourself, you know, it's very much a a re-evaluation of like, well, hang on a second here. What am I really doing all this for? Don't I similarly love what I do, but is it worth missing things that are unmissable, you know? And what cost will that have upon these kids for me not being around, you know, and putting it all on order? What cost does it have on my relationship? Not to mention the CO2 I'm pumping into the atmosphere. Yeah, look, it's been really interesting. I'm sure during this time, though, as someone who you work at some pretty high levels 
as far as you know decision makers go, whether it be a company or a government. I'm sure someone like you has been thinking very hard about where to from here and what it looks like from here and, you know, trying to think about how much of a break is, okay, we'll get back to business as usual. And then how much of a break is, you know, what, we've got a chance to do something different. And then how much of a break is, you know what, we could build the whole thing back better if you wanted. <laughs> you must've been thinking about that stuff a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's something that, I mean, in, in terms of the very last thing you said there about, you know, we could rebuild this whole thing. A lot of people have been talking about the next normal. And one of the things my colleagues and I sort of just wanted to really relabel as soon as possible was the next normal to the next possible. Right? Just think about that. It's not the next normal. It's not that everything's changed and it's as it has been. And the next stage can be just an increment of or mild changes of what we've always experienced. What if it was the next possible? And that for me is a very simple term, but it's very similar to what Jack Heath you know, from Sane shared, which was it's physical distancing with social connection. It's not social distancing. And it's a very simple but powerful change in messaging. When I think about the big changes, there's a lot and there's some that we think are going to be big switchbacks. So if you think about what we're seeing, we're already starting to see behaviours around restaurants that are changing their layouts because people are starting to prefer to eat in more open environments rather than closed environments. We've seen a massive uptick in digital in Australia, which was a little bit of a digital lacquard, not because of consumer behaviour in Australia, but really just about, I probably said, the digital infrastructure that we put in place with most of our large organisations. We're seeing things like Uber deliveries dropping off. It's dropping back. We're seeing massive spikes in areas that didn't have a lot of digital previously, such as fashion, luxury, and apparel. We're seeing home productivity digital tools like Zoom, Slack. They've all gone through the roof and they're likely to stick. Telehealth is likely to stick. That's been 30 40% increase in just about every single market. When we start to sit back from this and think, really what has COVID done? And I think what you're asking, but tell me, is how much of this is really going to change and how much is this going to perhaps switch back? And there's two answers to that. Is I think there's going to be the long-term adoption of some of the digital toolings and what I call the new news. For example, Generation Z, very good click and collect, online shopping. But what we started to see was a massive uptick in firsts for digital within our older population segments. And so we saw a massive set of new news within the Australian population. What we only saw was a really about a 6% increase in digital engagement in Australia overall during COVID. So if you look on one hand, you say, is there really going to be massive changes in how we operate due to COVID? The jury's out, and I think a lot of things will switch back because of long-held personal behaviours, which I'll get to in a second. But otherwise, there has actually been a lot of new news, which could be an inflection point. I think one of the things that's absolutely going to switch back very quickly is people going back to physical retail. And the reason I say that is between explicit and implicit motivation. Do people want to switch away from physical retail because they wanted to move to digital or because they were no longer able to access physical retail or their products, their goods through physical channels and had to go to digital? It's the latter. It's not the former. So with anything that's an explicit motivation, it, you change your behavior because some forces you to or there's a short-term benefit, but implicit motivation is a long-held belief about who you are and what you want to achieve. And I think COVID is going to impact a lot more on the explicit motivation than implicit motivation. 
So a lot of switchback. What about when it comes to the new news? When does something, and we saw it happen very quickly in Australia, as a country we seem to be a little averse to change, whether it be, hey, look, honestly, Grandpa, you really can't tell that one about the two Aboriginals at dinner. I know it was funny when you and your mates learned it, but you can't tell that joke anymore, man. And people quite reluctant to learn something that we once had a value on. We once had a value on that kind of humour in the public sphere and it was hilarious at the time. And then those kind of things are now, well, it's not the same anymore, blah, 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 versus wanting to change because something like you now have to shift everything that you knew about your daily habits and your weekly habits, yet grandpa's now well dead keen to do it. At what point does it switch, as you mentioned, from an explicit to an implicit? At what point do you know things that are part of someone's makeup, like he's the one that tells a joke about the, the, the two blokes from such and such, at what point does grandpa go, and I say grandpa because this is a, a portion of our population that is, you know, has notoriously stuck, but, you know, people get stuck quite early in their 20s maybe. At what point do we... And on what particular things do we get loose about? Because we got very, very quickly, mm. very adaptable in a matter of mm. days. And it blew my mind. <laughs> what, how, as someone who studies how people work, what is it that change, is the difference between those two things? Uh, so there's, there's a few, few things in those questions, and I'll, you know, I'll, I can only give you my own interpretation, right? First one there is how does somebody reevaluate their motivations in life? And the second one that I heard there was that rapid change, that rapid change. I'll start with the latter because I think it's a very easy one to answer. <laughs> the first one's a lot harder, right? Humans, we optimize for the local maxima, right? So if you thought about us in a maze with a number of pathways in front of us and there's a payoff depending on the decision, and I can see the decisions. This one's got a piece of cake. <laughs> this one's got nothing. This one's got a car, right? We turn around and we say, which one's going to optimize my next step? Ah, the value of the car is a lot bigger than the value of the piece of the cake, and that one there's got nothing at all. Forget that. I'll go to the car. Now, the interesting thing is that we that very quickly, based on local maxima, the closest, biggest payoff, what humans are very bad at and societies are very bad at, is long-term benefit, right? What if the first step, the one with the no cake, the next step after that, had a car and some additional money? and some additional social security, whatever the case may be. But you can't see it. Your very first step would have taken you to the car, which perhaps after that had no benefits. So we are very good at local maxima. We adapt very, very, very quickly. But what we're very, very bad at as a society and as human beings is seeing the long-term payoff, You know, the combinatorial effect of decision A, B, C, D, and E gets us to something else or the cross product. So that, I think, answers for me the first part, why we adapted so quickly, but also why you switch back. Yeah. What's the first best alternative? Ah, well, that one's got cake, that one's got no cake, and that one's got a cow. I'll switch back to that one, right? It's very, very simple. So our challenge, some of the challenges of our times, environmental sustainability, social inclusivity, inequality, uh, COVID-19, a raft of others, which I think are going to define our generation, are not the local maxima problems. They're the global maxima. So that, that for me, is a really interesting thing. On the first one about changing, you know, motivations and you know, perhaps you and I could share our own personal stories here, but there comes a moment where we have to reevaluate our personal values. And it's often a crisis because if I go down from a, coming into my human cognition sort of background, right, we have unconscious tasks, 
things that we do, like I've been clicking my pen here, it's probably been annoying the hell out of you, but it's an unconscious behavior. I just do it while I talk. Something needs to happen for that unconscious habit to become conscious. It's a conscious task. Oh, I need to click on the window to close you know, the application I'm using. But it's not really a goal. What am I trying to do? Maybe I was trying to write a document. Maybe you and I were trying to talk over Zoom, right? That's a goal. What am I trying to do? And then beyond that, there's the what's the actual activity? Why are we even on this call? Why am I even writing that document for the job that I'm doing? That's the activity. And behind that activity is a motivation. And the question is, are you explicitly motivated? Because you're going to get a, you know, some praise, some validation, some rewards, some recognition, fear, you know, flight of fear, anxiety, stress, or is it something about your own personal values, which is implicit motivation? And to change that implicit motivation, therefore, you have to get up and above the activity. And so if you think about your whole life as a series of activities that you consciously are doing, forgetting the unconscious behavior, most of those are driven by beliefs about who you are and your personal values. And so here's just my thought about what's been going on and why now is such a powerful moment. And that's, and I'll start with Australia, but I think globally, I think maybe with COVID. In Australia, we've gone through a combination of bushfires and COVID-19, which I think brought Australians together. It made us more empathetic. It made us think about others a lot more closely. It made us reevaluate, I think, our own values slightly. And what's really interesting as part of pandemics and global crises when you look at the academic literature is one of the things that really pops out is tribalism. And, and from the consumer research I do, if I do a little bit detour here, recently did a very large consumer research across Asia and Australia. We sort of looked at, with COVID-19, how people were thinking about where they're buying. And what they're buying is a lot more local-made. The people, mums and pups from around the area, they weren't thinking nationalistic of how do I buy Australian-made. There was sentiments of you know, protecting Australian-made, but there's a lot more of a how do I look after that store around the corner who's struggling to stay open, who I know who those people are. This was made, these are people and families just like you and I down the road. There's a lot more tribalism. And tribalism is something that really comes to the fore in the middle of crises. And what tribalism also brings out is who are the people like me and how do I find those people like me? And so therefore, how do I establish what my own values are? So through the bushfires and through COVID-19 and now with Black Lives Matter, I think there's this moment where we're actually a little more open to thinking about others, to reevaluating who we are, reevaluating who we are in the face of others. You are, you are someone who has access to more data than I could possibly comprehend. You are a very brave man because some of this data is utterly terrifying and ghastly, especially, you know, someone who's got a family, you've, you know, like many people listening, you've got kids, little kids. Thanks for the recommendation of the stock chair, by the way. It's freaking awesome. I love it. It's really good. I'll give you a few more in a second. I appreciate the note. Uh, As soon as Rod found out that we were going to have a baby, he's like, okay, man, get this chair and get this pram and this pram only. All right. (laughs) Of anyone that I will believe that has done the research, it's you. (laughs) Hey, those, both those two products have not failed us. Uh, You know, I like to research things. (laughs) Oh yeah. I have this. But similarly, you have, you got access to just, data that is so utterly, utterly ghastly and horrifyingly terrifying when it comes to the impact that the economy, which powers our world mm. and our way of life, 
is causing on our environment. And we as a species got a chance to ignore that connection for a very, very, very long time. We were able to just go on and keep making shit and keep flying around the place and keep doing stuff and keep inventing new things without a care for this sneaking up externality of there is going to be a moment where the capacity for the environment to regenerate itself while all this stuff is going on is going to run out. And now, in our lifetimes, it's there. And there's graphs, I'm sure, on a PDF on the laptop you're speaking to me on that will say it's far sooner than I want to know about. What's it like when you are in the business of making businesses be better businesses and make more money when you're in that business and now you have to speak to those people about, okay then, right, well, you know how we all learned about uh, capacities of hospitals and curves, right? And how we have to flatten curves, right? Here's the capacity of our atmosphere to sustain life, okay? <laughs> Here's where your dollars, <laughs> like, because you work at that echelon, you work at that level with people that high up. How do those conversations start to happen when you're dealing with people who have done nothing but get mad dividends for their shareholders for the last 50 years? And as far as they're concerned, everything they've ever done is the best thing ever. Like, How do you even have those conversations? That's a really, really good question. The first minor correction I give you is a lot of those people are, what I'd say, very concerned. When we're looking at, you know, major shareholder returns. I think there's probably a, a segment of that that you would have the case, but a lot of businesses are actually most of the time trying to think about dwindling returns, employee health, retention of staff. A lot of CEOs lose a lot of sleep overnight on some of the things that you and I would want to lose a lot of sleep over as well. So just a minor comment there. And I, I raise that to say it's a really tricky conversation the hard conversation is not thinking about the profits or thinking about building a, a better business. It's not talking about environmental sustainability or climate change or talking about the fact that we've already tipped past the 2030 guidelines and we're now staring at a very, very hard set of ramifications for 2050. The question is how do you make the tough decisions now around employment, economy, making very hard decisions around the environment for that global maxima? discussion that you and I talked about yeah. maybe just a, a second ago. And I know you're passionate about this, so maybe I'll get you to talk about this, but very, very quickly, right? We're currently, what, 25% PHEV, you know, in terms of plug-in hybrid vehicles globally, we're at 25% of vehicles sold globally are in that hybrid space. We're looking towards around about 2035, 2040, having about $100 billion electric charging sort of infrastructure. These are fantastic sort of long-term numbers. We can start talking about Australia's contribution from rare metals into you know, global battery production. Amazing. How do you have the conversation with somebody about the hard decisions they need to make now before those returns are generated is, is what I find to be you know, the harder thing. Uh, mate, I don't know. It's, it's what you were saying before. It's you're standing at the maze. You've got the cake, you've got the car, you've got the nothing. And it's trying to talk to someone who's, you know, you go back to what does a human do um, when they're in this position. You're talking to someone, unless you're in a particular kind of government in a particular kind of country, you've got to someone, you're talking to someone who's going to, only going to be in the job for three years, maybe four, yeah. if they're lucky, eight or six. And what are they going to do? to try to make a decision that will affect the fifth next person to do the job, you know? 
I guess that's not to say that incrementally these things aren't going to start impacting us more and more and more and sooner than later because there's another bushfire season coming, all right? There's another drought around the corner. There's another storm that's almost a cyclone that's going to come back to Sydney within the next year, you know, then these things will get closer and closer together and incrementally worse and worse and worse until the point where enough of these things will happen in a row where it becomes just so blindingly obvious to the general population that they'll just demand a change. And that's the shittest part about humans is we have to wait, Rod. We have to wait until, like COVID-19, you personally could get sick if you go to the shops. So you personally have to stay home. You now have to change your behavior. As you said, it's got to be immediate. It's got to be personal. It's got to be, if I do this today, then tomorrow it'll be different. And that's the messaging that unfortunately we have to wait for, which just sucks, unless someone can come up with something really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we look at the things that you and I talk about. If we talk about clean tech, if we talk about social equality, none of those things we can take an easy pathway forward on. We just can't. So like three things. One is I, I do think, and I know you weren't making this point, but I really would like to say it is through all my travels, I really do get a sense of caring and generosity from the clients that I serve. Often we can look at big business and think it can be a bit cold, it can be a bit faceless. And hey, let's not clean the slate of the things that are done wrong that we all know about. But by the same time, I actually do see a lot of caring. So example, from our mental health survey, yeah. we have seen a 70% increase in employers starting to put in place uh, additional means of support for behavioral health. So it's increased insurance. It's actually at work, uh, support structures for mental health, stress, anxiety. I mean, it's all great stuff. So people want to do the right thing. The question is, can they do it at the right time? And, and do they know how? Right? The other thing you brought up was behavior change, which I actually thought was really, really important. So for behavior change to occur, you've got to have a trigger. For that trigger, you've got to be able to action it. Like, can I actually do it? Is it really hard or can I, can I just do it? Then you've got to reinforce whether some sort of reward that makes you want to do it. Right? So I ask you the question in, in a way of what do you think has been going on over the last two weeks in particular that is leading to so much behavior change? I think the trigger is clear, but what do you think has been happening? I refer here to sort of black lives. Is what do you think beyond the trigger has been doing the this action I can take? there's a reward that's sustainable that's going to lead to long-lasting behaviour change rather than a moment-in-time reaction. So what's been the trigger? I think that one's pretty clear. The trigger's pretty clear? Yeah, I think the trigger's very clear. The trigger's pretty clear. It was uh, the video of George Floyd um, being uh, killed by a cop being filmed by a 17-year-old girl on her phone and then shared around the world and that he was not the only African-American man to die like that, but he, what I guess Malcolm Gladwell will call the tipping point. He was the one where he went, all right, that's it. That's enough. That's enough, everybody. Yet at the same time, it's come along at a time where certainly in America, there's a great amount of dissatisfaction for anybody that's not white 
with the government. And here is a moment where those two things can come together and be in solidarity and demand, hey, I'm a human being. Um, can you treat me like a human being, please? Not an unreasonable request. As far as the action, I can either share that video, amplify that video. I can call somebody out in my immediate community on something racist in a group chat, which is harder said than done. I should know. And I can go march as illegal or legal as that can be. Does that sound right? Sounds about right. You can have conversations. Yeah. You, know, you can talk about the fact that there's racial and gender pay disparity. Yeah. Right? We can have the tough conversations, but they're all doable and you can do it right now. And so that, that always raises the question of behavior change of what happens if the thing that you asked, that your very next step was for you to say, we can't actually change the world unless we had some immediate policy change tomorrow. Yeah. Right? You, you, you couldn't action it. It would be very, very, very hard. So all of these, we've got to be able to have something that we can participate in very, very quickly and then continue it and reinforce it. So when it comes to what we have now, which is this really interesting nexus of the new possible, when you come to the new possible, where we have this moment of extraordinary unemployment in our country and economic downturn and industries that will probably not come back for some years, if ever, Industries like, mm. say, for example, adventure tourism, live music. There's a lot, a lot of people, very, very talented, creative people who are not going to be able to work in the thing they've dedicated their lives to. And yet we also have this opportunity to, well, you know, what are some of the, the biggest and most useful pieces of infrastructure that we've found useful in our country over the last hundred years in Sydney? These beautiful ocean baths, they're fantastic. The Great Ocean Road, the Sydney Harbour Bridge in America, the Hoover Dam, the superhighways. These things were all government spending built to bring economies out of recession or depression, as it were. And we have this moment where we're like, okay, we are, so we have this need. We have these people that need work. We've got a lot of government spending happening. What if we found a new possible as far as how we power this new manufacturing? What if we found a, a new possibility there? When you look at the research, and I've seen some, and it looks interesting, when you look at the research around that, around the direction that is possible for us to take, what do you see here in Australia around ways that we might be able to move from this place to put us in a more solid place around not only economic stability, but also supply chain stability, manufacturing stability, and energy independence? Oh, wow. I think you really stumped me there. <laughs> it's a big, it's a massive question, and, I, and my mind literally imploded on the on the. On the, on the f- I've, I've just gone, I've just gone crazy for it. Okay, let me let me bring. No, it. no, 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 no. Listen, it's it's a great question. Okay, let me I let me give you the, the really the short version, Rod. The really short version. There's a moment in the country where we've got a heap of unemployment, and yeah. as you mentioned, we're in the maze. We've got the cake. We've got the empty path. We've got the car. We have an opportunity now economically and with this government spending on infrastructure to create the new possible, what could that new possible be? I think the new possible for us beyond just getting the getting everyone back on the horse is there's a massive opportunity for, for really looking at uh, energy profile within Australia, right? That that has to be number one. Manufacturing is another opportunity, but it's really tough, right? Because, from an economic perspective, globalization makes sense, makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, we do want to, in my view, 
reimagine what manufacturing in Australia looks like because through COVID, we're going to have a lot of issues with mid-market. There's going to be a lot of companies in the small and mid-sized market going to the wall. And that, therefore, if you take an innovation lens, means how can we reimagine what the mid-market looks like? So I think clean tech, energy, uh, the mid-market sector in innovation and manufacturing makes sense. We need to completely reimagine our digital supply chains in Australia. What we've seen is, is, is a falling over through COVID on a fundamental level. There are so many things that I could talk to you about for hours, which is why I adore speaking with you. What is it right now that excites you the most? What's the thing that you are so thrilled about or what's the thing that you think, you know what, I just have to get more people thinking about this? So for me, it's what I call the change that matters. There's a real flood of attention being paid to right now how we can create environments that are far more sustainable. So let me just pick up on a few of those. So yes, we've got climate change and environmental sustainability. There's a lot of work that's being done in recycling, not just in recycling, but plastics in particular. We've got a view of how do we change the gender gap, the racial gap? How do we have discussions around mental health? I mean, I think you would agree these things are being spoken about far more often than they're not. And that's what I'm probably most excited about now. Yes, I enjoy working with you know, organizations who are going through a large transformation, but what's got me really passionate is looking at the broader sort of systemic change that we're now staring into. There's just so many fronts where people are banging the table saying, now's the time to change. And I think it's the sort of change that matters. I would put it to you, though, those three things are extraordinarily interconnected. Or if you give a country that is on the up, say a country in, in Central Africa or a country in Southeast Asia, if you give them free or near free energy and now the workplace is so much more accessible, there's more leisure time, there's time for education, then it starts to change the social fabric. The climate conversation is an equity conversation and both of those conversations are a mental health conversation. And it's great because... If you work on one thing, then each of the other two will move, you know, it's, it's, which is good, which is exciting. It's a good outcome. I personally feel like, yes, we could have environmental sustainability and not care about equity, but I feel if we cared more about equity, the environmental sustainability would come along a lot quicker because it would allow countries that are otherwise quite inhibited to take a pathway that is clean and sustainable and therefore bringing them to a place where they can make better decisions and not, what did you say, local maxima decisions, you know. Yeah, so I feel it's the one thing. But, you know, that makes it easier because it's just one problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a re-evaluation of, of what matters. Yeah. There's some research that we recently did, and, and this is why I also say, I think if we can make it about really re-evaluating what matters to us all, but then sort of respecting that everyone needs to come from this rather different perspective, yeah, uh, then it's a good outcome. So recently did some uh, climate change work. And when we asked the question around what your personal impact and passion is for climate change, we had very, very big disparities between countries. There are a couple of areas in Asia that were very, very low on the care factor on, on climate change, whereas Australia, Germany, uh, England were a lot higher. And if you took that at face value, you'd say, well, hang on, there's a couple of countries that don't care about climate change. But when we went and did over 150 interviews in those countries, 
what we found is they said, well, hang on, when I understand my environment, I think plastic, I think pollution, I think my waterways. When everyone else talks about climate change, they're talking about temperatures. That's really not what's impacting my day-to-day life. My day-to-day life is I can't keep my child clean drinking water. Or I walk outside and everyone's just throwing their rubbish on the ground or there's no recycling program. So how people even interpret some of these things are, are very, very different, but they're all coming from the same perspective, which is I want a better world and I want to reevaluate what truly, truly matters. And I think if that's the anchoring point right now, then that's a very powerful thing. We just saw IBM, International Business Machines, in the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, IBM came out, the CEO came out and said, we are no longer going to do facial recognition software. We're not going to develop it. We're not going to research it. We will not provide it to any contractors. We don't think it's an ethical thing to do. We don't want to live in a society that has it. And that's it for IBM, no longer doing it. It's not going to stop it, you know, but it's a massive company with humongous shareholder investment, you know, people who are waiting for their dividends, the mm. super funds get paid out from the dividends of a company like this. Mm. And it's clearly facial recognition is a growing market. And they've gone, you know what? Ethically, no, we're going to stop doing this. When you look at people at that level, are they the odd one out or are you starting to see those kind of moves getting played more and more? Whereby a, a large organization is making some very tough ethical decisions to stop particular research or or to make a particular, you're making a tough ethical decision that may not be the best economic decision for their company. Because the tough conversations with the government will take years, but a company is far more nimble. So there's one that comes to mind, which is the Norwegian Sovereign Fund. Yes. They've cut a whole bunch of oil and gas manufacturers from their portfolio in favour of clean tech. I mean, when you're an investment fund, I don't care what type of investment fund you are or how you couch it. You have one major responsibility, the primary responsibility, and that is for the fund to grow and grow long-term sustainably for the benefit of the people who are part of that fund. So for a large, large national fund. It's the biggest one in the world, $1.6 trillion. Trillion, yeah. Yes. Right? To cut fossil fuels. And I don't know to the extent to which they're cutting all fossil fuels, but I know they've cut a few sort of fossil fuel sort of driven enterprises is not a small step. That's not a small decision. And we'll have short-term economic ramifications, but I'm sure you could bolster it up with the high-growth and high-yielding businesses and stocks. Mm -hmm. But that's one that comes to mind. BlackRock Capital saying that they're going to get out of fossil fuels. Yep. Does it make you happy or sad that we have to wait until it's the economic right thing to do, not the moral right thing to do? (laughs) People don't want to be stuck with these decaying coal-fired power plants that aren't ever going to run again. Oh, <laughs> listen, it does, but that's the hard and the tough and the right challenge to face, right? Because that's how you switch from an ideological debate to a debate on what is the right next step to take, is can you put a value on it? And I think you can put a value on just about everything, and that's not to make everything feel very commercial, but if I was to say to you as a business, I want you to significantly improve your customer experience because it sucks, right? Your customers are unhappy. It sucks. What is the dollar? What is the value at stake for not improving your customer experience with the product or the service that you offer? Well, you could start to break that down into perhaps there's churn, less customers, they buy less. 
perhaps their basket size is less. All of this can be equated and modeled into a dollar figure. So when asked the question of, does it bother me <laughs> that we have to have these really big debates and tough moments and crises to be able to make what can sometimes look like the very, very obvious decision, then yes, it does frustrate me. But by the same moment, perhaps it's the problem solver in me says, but that's the problem to solve. How do I make this the first best alternative? If the value stacks up, it becomes the first best alternative. And it's not conviction. It's not ideological debate. It is the first best rational, logical thing to do, which is why I also think that that need, coming back to perhaps the COVID-19 thing and the proof of investment, I think the long-term shift to clean and renewable energy in Australia and elsewhere is absolutely the obvious right thing to do. Getting there with the right value, with the right infrastructure in place, so it can be very clearly understood as the first best alternative is the actual challenge. And there needs to be more voices and there needs to be more examples and there needs to be more modelling and from a people power, and sorry to quote Winston Churchill here, but you know, our buildings shape us and we shape our buildings, or it's the other way around. I can never quite remember, but this is participatory, right? So the more we get invested in, the more we purchase things, the more that we create the shift that makes the change we want to be the very first best alternative, the quicker it becomes the first best alternative, right? Mate, I love the way you just put that. Like, once you can put a dollar value, I just want to repeat it because it was worth repeating. Once you put a dollar value on something, that shifts it from being an ideological discussion and into, well, you value money, I value money. Okay, let's go. And it changes that. And, and making it the first, next best option, alternative. Is that what you said? It's your first best alternative. First best alternative. Perfect. That's that's a, a extraordinary extraordinary way to way to put it, and it, and it gives me great hope as far as going forward, and also people listening. What you just said, it gives them hope as far as you know. Well, what can I use my dollars to buy? What can I support? What can I put into my house? We were talking just before we rolled tape on. We're looking at maybe getting some work done on the house, and I sat the guy down and I said, "Look, in ten years, it's going to be forty eight degrees in Sydney on a regular basis." If I put a little more money into my insulation now, I won't have to be paying to run a three-phase air conditioner for three months of the year nonstop. I'm going to save money, but it's going to be the upfront cost. I'm not afraid of the upfront cost. So pitch me the insulation. Pitch me that versus if you look at your power bill that will now have to run, say, three days more a year until 2050 or whenever, you know, it's horrifying, but this is the truth. What's that power bill going to be? What's the money I'm going to spend on it? What could that money be otherwise used for? Well, crikey, what if I invested it here and put it in this? I spoke to a bloke who did the maths on exactly this. He said by putting a solar panel, he's very clever, this guy. He said by putting solar panels on his roof, he said, I've done the sums. He goes, I have put, he said, in 25 years, I'll put another $250,000 into my kid's nest egg. Because the way he saved the money, the way where he's going to invest it, where he's going to put it. Like, when you start thinking about that, it's like, hang on, you put a 20 grand solar system on your roof or 30 grand solar system on your roof, and it means that in 20 years, 25 years, you'll be able to give your kids a quarter million bucks. That's a very smart way of thinking about, I'll just turn the aircon on because I'm hot. There you go. <laughs> you yeah, yeah. And it also immediately says, well, how could any other option be better than that? Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Totally. So on the climate change and environmental sustainability and clean tech, there's two parts to this. There's the rational and the emotional. 
Yeah. And I love the emotional because we've got to be emotional about it. Yeah. We've got to be emotional about it. And emotional means you've got to listen to everyone else's perspective on it because it's a heated debate and there's jobs tied to it and everything else, right? Yeah. But it's very hard to move past emotion. You've got to move past emotion. And in order to do that, you've got to have something very, very concrete that says, how is option B going to be better than option A? It's not. Option A is investing now, saving later. And you and I have talked as well about uh, getting to this space means there's a there's going to be a lot more jobs down the line as well. I loved your Q and A. I loved your Q and A answer. It's true though. It's true. And look, I'm not going to lie. And I say this to everybody. What happened on Q and A was a result of I think I had about two weeks' notice, and I worked about three or four hours every single day mm. on reading and reading and riffing stuff with Audrey and writing stuff down and reading and okay. Okay. And I prepped like, have you ever seen the movie, um, uh, Frost Nixon, how they prepped for the interview with Richard Nixon? Oh, it's freaking mm-hmm. amazing. One of my favorite films made me love what I do even more. And yeah, I've worked really hard to make sure that no matter which way the conversation went, I would have something to say that would be very, very quotable fit on an Instagram tile and would get a laugh. And I reckon yep. I got about four or five of them in. I had about 20, but I had about four or five, no matter where the conversation was going to go. And that took a shitload of work. And it was fucking hard because as yeah. you and I both know, when you're trying to do research about something that makes you want to shit your pants, like I have an anxiety reaction to this stuff that is so intense, my hands shake. When I was going through that stuff every day, it was really hard to do, but I'm better for it because now I can read that stuff a little, it still sucks, but I can read it a little easier because I pushed into it. And um, yeah. I'm able to have even this conversation about it. And it's very different. And I'm really grateful that you would say that and that you took notice because you're someone I respect enormously, not only in the climate stuff and, and the research that you do, but very much in the in the dadding space. Because when we sat next to each other at the this first SANE board meeting, right after we found out we were pregnant or when we, we said we were, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, you turned to me and said, all right, this chair, this stroller, don't go anywhere else. I've just saved you three months. <laughs> just... <laughs> Uh, and so, but now we're nearly at, he's nearly 10 months. I can see his wrists for the first time, same weight, but he's, he's now outgrown the change table. So he's doing the, the stretch part before he balloons again. So he's getting massive. Where are you with dad guidance at this point, Rod? Hey. Uh, well, firstly, I, I've got a couple of years on, you know, my kids are, uh, I think, uh, probably a year older and, and two years older. So I've got a few, few tips and tricks tips and tricks so one if you haven't already have a look at the i think it's called the little partners learning tower right oh yes so the little partners learning tower is a great way to you know help them stand up at a tower at the dinner table or in the kitchen wherever you're doing working get them participating playing with vegetables you know get them one of those pretend knives <laughs> it helps them sort of it, a it helps them interact but also, it means you don't have to be carrying them mm-hmm. around the place. You don't have to be watching them crawling up the walls in the other room thinking they're going to fall down and break their neck. So that's one. When it gets to potty training, there's going to be mess. And if it happens enough, it doesn't matter what product you use, you're not going to quite get that smell out of the bathroom unless you use shaving foam. Oh, my God. Shaving foam. You're, so talking, you about, sh- you're, you're talking about boys, right? Yeah, I'm, I am. I am. Yeah. I am. So if you get shaving foam and yeah. you put shaving foam all over your floor, assuming that you've got something like a stone or a linoleum or whatever the fact is, yeah. it actually completely 
deodorize the, the situation. You just wash it off. It's better than using a Dettol or anything else. It's shaving foam. Shaving foam. Extraordinary. The last one. Yeah. The last one is if they've got Play-Doh. Yeah. Or textures or pen, and they're probably going to draw all over something nice that they're not supposed to retable. Uh, barkeeper's friend. What is if it? If you put that, barkeeper's friend is a powder that you can get from Coles, and I think just about every mum knows about it because it just goes like that. I think during COVID, it, it was very hard to it's get It's a, a cleaning hold of. product. Cleaning product called Barkeeper's Friend. Have a look at it. And you can try and scrub that pen mark out or that ring from cordial or whatever it is that's stuck in your stone or whatever you've got. It's not coming out. And then you'll get the barkeeper's friend and you put a little bit of that on and it's going to come out and you're going to dance. And you're going to, <laughs> you're going to call me and you're going to say, you're right about the shaving phone <laughs> and you're right about the barkeeper's friend. Wolfie fell off the learning table and broke his neck. That's on you, Rod, but, you know. Yeah, no, 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 he won't because I've seen a photo of them. I know exactly because you did show it to me at the same meeting. You did show it to me and eventually we'll need this. It does have railings on the side. So he'll be uh, – he'll be th- those three tips are extraordinary and I'm very, very grateful grateful for them. <laughs> to be able to have a conversation like this with you, as I said, someone who knows – who spends a day staring down the abyss and – to be able to hear a laugh in your voice and to be able to see a smile on your face and speak with excitement and joy about your kids makes me believe that it is possible to know both things, all right? That's the thing that I think terrified me for so long. Like, how could I possibly know all this stuff and still enjoy my day? Gives me great hope, Rod, and I'm very grateful, grateful for your time, and I certainly hope that we can do this again at some point. Mate, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) that was dr rod farmer if you liked what you heard uh, you can find him on twitter and let him know at rod farmer r-o-d-f-a-r-m-e-r thanks very much for sticking with me today i really appreciate it thanks to andy ma my audio producer that helped me make the show and rachel barrett my uh, show producer who just does everything (laughs) she's an incredible human being Haley Van Spanier on the socials and Mike Mills on the music thank you all for helping us make this show together better than yesterday we'll be back this Friday uh, where I will talk with you maybe answer some more questions Um, if you have any questions just email me or get me on Instagram pretty easy alright I'm going to go and sit down and um, actually try to do nothing because while it is great to have a bike in the room like sometimes I actually have to not do anything and just let my body recover even though I do like to do stuff to keep my brain from thinking about shit (laughs) so I'm going to try real hard just to sit on the couch alright until I talk to you Friday sleep well sleep really well and dream of beautiful things imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.